Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 1. 1 Chronicles chapter 1, we will begin reading in verse 8. The sons of Ham, Cush and Mitzrayim, Put and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah, and Sabta and Ra'amah and Sabteca. And the sons of Ra'amah, Sheba and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be mighty upon the earth. And Mitzrayim begat Ludim and Anamim, and Lehabim and Naphtuhim, and Pathrusim and Kasluhim, of whom came the Philistines, and Kaphtarim. And Canaan begat Zidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite also, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Each morning when I get up to meet with the Savior, in those early morning hours, I pick up the Bible, and in spite of the the passage of all these years, I am still struck with a holy amazement that I have a Bible that the Lord has spoken and that He has been pleased to put that speech into my hands and to have it ringing in my ears. And then uh, having blessed me with other providential advantages, my native language has one of the finest translations in uh, the world. And I had the opportunity to study Greek and Hebrew, Aramaic, and other languages, all of which are helpful in the study of the scripture. But what an amazing gift and an amazing treasure. Jesus speaking to us in the scriptures. I thought that we might use our studies in Chronicles to focus on the doctrine of scripture over the next uh, couple of Lord's Days. We have just reached uh, verse 13, and we are entering upon the descendants of Canaan and the importance of the Canaanites for the history of Israel uh, cannot be underestimated. But no sooner do we come to the case of the Canaanites than one of the great ethical difficulties of Scripture presents itself to us. Uh, the Israelites were to wage what is known as harem warfare against uh, the Canaanites. Uh, that term harem in Hebrew can sound good. Basically, it means devoted to or consecrated to. So to be devoted to the Lord sounds like a, a good thing. And viewed from one perspective, I suppose that even this is... But it is a hard thing for fallen humans to uh, consider. 
they are uh, devoted to the Lord in the sense that uh, they are given over completely to destruction for his glory, the glory of his uh, righteousness in judging and uh, making war. Uh, that's a hard lesson indeed. But with this, with this particular difficulty in front of us, we are reminded that the scripture has its difficulties, doesn't it? And there's a certain kind of mind. I confess that my mind is that sort that is peculiarly attracted to difficulties. I, um, I do appreciate the plain and easy portions of scripture, but when a difficulty arises, there's something about that that I find engrossing. Uh, some years ago, I uh, read in the midst of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions that he was resolved um, when he found some difficulty in scripture or in theology to uh, pursue it, either till he had a resolution or until the end of his life. And I hardly even need to make, make such a resolution. I, I do find these things very interesting to me. So there's, there is something about, I guess, a certain kind of mind and certain habits of mind. But then as I have explored these things, I've, I've seen something else by experience that the investigation of such difficulties has led to a lot of um, learning, a lot of spiritual uh, advantage, provided we're looking for a sound scriptural explanation rather than um, like explaining away difficulties. And I frequently wondered um, uh, when we get into the habit of trying to explain away things that are hard, uh, don't we lose the the advantage that the consideration of such things would uh, would afford? And when it comes to the harem warfare in, in Canaan, there has been a lot of explaining away. But also over the years, um, when I'm confronted with scriptural difficulties, I've I've also lost uh, my fear or my concern. Um, there was a time, I guess, when um, my interest in a lot of these things was, I don't know, merely apologetic. I want to be able to provide an answer to uh, defend the authority and inspiration of the scripture or something like that. At this point in my life, I'm I, uh, more able to add my amen to the declaration of Spurgeon that the scripture doesn't need defense any more than a lion needs my defense, right? But I, I was deeply impressed when I began the Matthew Poole project in the preface to his synopsis. He observes, and again, the synopsis is a history of interpretation. Um, all the way from the most ancient e exegetes to, to Poole's own period. 
And uh, from that vantage point, he was able to say that uh, many of the scriptural difficulties that had at one point been thought insoluble and powerful arguments against uh, the divine authority of the scripture have since been resolved and so thoroughly resolved that not even unbelievers bring them up anymore. Um, and then Poole says that his own generation had received a list of difficulties and that some more had been resolved. Uh, but he also knew that there were still things that had not been resolved. But he also had lost his fear. He was okay to hand those difficulties on. He, the Church of the Living God had now had three and a half millennia of experience with God's Word. And we had seen these supposedly unresolvable difficulties resolved over and over and over again. And so it is. Um, I know that the Bible is God's word upon other grounds. And so I'm quite sure that when I bump into a difficulty, it has its re resolution. We must simply consider and study and think and wait and pray and be very careful not to explain it away until the Lord provides answers. So our text is... Um, an illustration it's a it's an exercise in the doctrine of scripture but also uh, we see the lessons that can be gleaned when we are willing and brave enough to take an unflinching look at difficulties so turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and let me try to give you a first sketch of the of the difficulty and I'm going to um cherry cherry pick some some verses here just to get a sketch of the difficulty i would encourage you if you have opportunity later on this lord's day to read all of deuteronomy chapter 7 but uh let's pick up our reading with verse 1 when the lord thy god shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites, and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them and right off the bat we we see that that's that's a hard declaration and requirement now scan down with me to verse 16 and thou shalt consume all the people which the Lord thy God shall deliver thee thine eyes shall have no pity upon them neither shalt thou serve their gods for that will be a snare unto thee. And now skin down to verse 20. Moreover, the Lord thy God will send the hornet among them until they that are left and hide themselves from thee be destroyed. Thou shalt not be affrighted at them, for the Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. 
and the Lord thy God will put out those nations before thee by little and little. Thou mayest not consume them at once, lest the beasts of the field increase upon thee. But the Lord thy God shall deliver them unto thee, and shall destroy them with a mighty destruction, until they be destroyed. And she shall deliver their kings into thine hand, and thou shalt destroy their name from under heaven. There shall no man be able to stand before thee, until thou have destroyed them. So here we get a, uh, a deliverance of the requirement. This is Deuteronomy. Uh, the people of God are on the plains of Moab on the other side of Jordan. Uh, Joshua is getting ready to take the reins and uh, lead the people over Jordan to execute these very orders. And in the execution, we see that we were not confused. We see it exemplified immediately at Jericho. Joshua chapter 6, verse 21. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. When, when we look at this, there is no desying, denying that this is hard. And we don't want to explain that away or sidestep it, but rather learn from it. What lessons are there in it? When, when we come face to face with this, um, I think that there, there are things in us that, um, that recoil at it. Some of it is probably from what might be thought a good place. Uh, if we have natural affection, there's something about us that recoils from uh, seeing the destruction of those that share our nature. Also, when we, when we look at this kind of thing, they're told not to have pity, not to have mercy. This, um, seems quite opposite to the kinds of directions that we normally get in Scripture. Mercy is highly commended. Um, uh, compassion. Is this even what God commends normally for war? Right? This just feel there's a tension here with uh, some of the other things that we find in, in the Scripture. So th this would be um, this would be us drawing back probably for for some good reasons uh, but then I think sometimes our drawing back is is from not so good a place we might be drawing back because we think it to be unfair and so what I wanted to do was present a, a handful of considerations beginning with that last one is this unfair is this unjust for God to handle this in this way and then uh, a handful of other uh, considerations that ho hopefully help us to view this in the right way explain it again without explaining it away so is it un unjust for God to 
command the Israelites to go in and kill everyone. Uh, not just the men, but the women. Not just the adults, but uh, the children. And in some cases, they were even, like at Jericho, they were expressly told not even to take any of the spoil, which was not a universal rule. But here, everything in Jericho is to be destroyed to the glory of God, the glory of his justice. Well, um, I think when we when we raise the challenge and say this is unfair, it does betray a a rather profound wrong-headedness. It indicates, so it seems to me, you'll have to think it through yourself, that we think very much of ourselves, of our value. And then on the other hand, we think very little of our sins, think very little of the majesty of God that is trampled upon by our filthy sinful feet so yes if if we think much of ourselves and little of the divine majesty and the seriousness of sin uh, this seems insupportably harsh but as soon as we remember that the wages of sin and every sin is death and that that is just no matter how small the sin comparatively with other sins, all sins have this in common, that they do trample upon the infinite divine majesty. Now, how worthy is God to be honored and obeyed in his majesty? Well, we would say, I don't know, absolutely, infinitely without um, limitation well then the heinousness in not doing so is going to be in inverse proportion uh, there can be uh, no greater crime than offense against the high majesty of heaven's god so the wages of sin is death and that is just and so all lives are forfeit to God, and he can take them in any way that he pleases. He can take them by natural causes after uh, comparatively lengthy days. He can take them in a national uh, natural disaster. He can even authorize intelligent creatures to do it. We see that sometimes in Scripture, his angels engage in, in the taking of human life from time to time without any sort of complaint or hesitation. Um, you might think about God authorizing just war. Um, probably the easiest example of a just war is a defensive one, and perhaps all just wars at the end of the day are, but um, defensive warfare or the magistrate punishing a, a capital crime. This is God authorizing intelligent creatures to take life. Um, but all lives um, have been forfeit to God. Those that have committed uh, their own actual sins, be adult men and women, 
and even infant kind with the imputed guilt of Adam, all the lives are forfeit uh, to God. And so right away we need to wipe away this idea that this might in some way be unjust. But when we when we offered our uh, complaint that that se this seems out of step with counsel that we get in other places of scripture here we get no mercy but everywhere else we're, we have mercy commended to us turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 20 and I think we're comforted by the fact that the that the scripture does expressly tell us that what God did with the Canaanites and the kind of war that he authorized the Israelites to wage against them was not ordinary. Deuteronomy 20 is very interesting because we get God's ordinary rules for warfare, and then they are set in immediate contrast with the kind of war that's waged in Canaan. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20, beginning in verse 10. When thou comest nigh unto a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace unto it. And it shall be, if it make thee answer of peace, and open unto thee, then it shall be that all the people that is found therein shall be tributaries unto thee, and they shall serve thee. And if it will make no peace with thee, but will make war against thee, then thou shalt besiege it. And when the Lord thy God hath delivered it into thine hands, thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword. I do want you to notice, and I think you'll you'll feel more comfortable and at home here, the, the first movement. So let's say that um, Damascus of Syria has authorized raids against northern uh, Israelites. Um, the magistrate might very well authorize war against Damascus of Syria, but the first thing is you would go and sue for uh, terms of a just peace, and, which would in, which would include war reparations. Uh, in justice, they would uh, be required to make uh, restitution for. Um, raids and maybe even loss of life in um, those northern Israelite territories as well as to pay for uh, the army that is even then besieging them in justice. But if peace fails, if they will not uh, submit themselves to a just and honorable peace but will make an unjust war then their ability to make war is to be taken away, and thus the, the destruction of the male lives in their midst. But um, normally the, the women and the children are to be saved, spared, and even rescued, verse 14. But the women and the little ones and the cattle and all that is in the city, even all the spoil thereof, shalt thou take unto thyself, and thou shalt eat the spoil of thine enemies, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. So even in the normal rules of warfare, 
there are hard things. But if I might, if I might say so, this is one of the things that has, that has deeply impressed me. The Bible is the most real book that I know. It deals with the way things really are. And when war comes, it's hard. And there are hard realities to be faced when you are uh, dealing with the sinfulness of men, especially when that sinfulness has become violent and dangerous. There are hard things here. And uh, the scripture takes an unflinching look at them and provides suitable remedies. We might flinch, and we might want to wish and dream these realities away, but the Bible never does anything like that. It always views things the way that they really are. So this is the, this is the prescription for war, the general rules of war. And we can see that they are um, uh, peace-seeking and just and moderate and reasonable. But now look at verse 15 as we go on. Thus shalt thou do unto all the cities which are very far off from thee, which are not of the cities of these nations, but of the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance. Thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth, but thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods. So should ye sin against the Lord your God. So we might say if, it, if the warfare in Canaan feels irregular with respect to normal methods and counsel in scripture that's because it is and this this text uh, recognizes that so now it raises questions why did god so all lives are forfeit to god but then he has a way that he wants it to be handled when it comes to war but why why a different handling for the canaanites and there are several things that can be said in this regard. One, this is going to be Israel's settlement. It is contemplated as a spiritually immature church, a church under age. And so time and time again, the expelling of the Canaanites is portrayed as a spiritual protection for God's people. So again, their lives are, are forfeit to God's justice, he can take them when and how he pleases. And we're beginning to see some of the reasons why he was pleased to do so. At least one of the reasons had to do with regard for the spiritual welfare of his people. They are not ready to handle the temptations that the Canaanites will uh, present. And if I just might make a very brief personal application... We need to be very sober in evaluating ourselves, right? Um, we don't want to be exposing ourselves to undue temptation. That's best to assess on an individual basis. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And um, 
I don't want to make myself vulnerable in areas in which I'm weak. Well, God knew that his church, his Israelite church, was um, weak concerning matters pertaining to uh, idolatry and so on, and so he would have the temptation removed, very much the same way that a great many temptations we simply keep our minor children away from. So, a different handling for the Canaanites for the sake of his people, but then also looking at the Canaanites themselves, there is an extraordinary judgment pronounced against them. And I do want you to see, if we can rewind in time from the conquest, if we can go back um, more than 400 years, God says this to Abraham, but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, that is, the Israelites will come up out of Egypt, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Genesis 15, verse 16. It's very interesting that uh, in the time of Abraham, God would not give Abraham any of the land. He continues to view it as properly the possession of the Canaanites. And he will not expel the Canaanites until their iniquity is full. But then some 400 years later, their iniquity is full. And he expels them. And he does it in this, um, in this extraordinary way as a very public testimony against their sins. So what, what was the moral and spiritual condition of Canaan at the time? Well, starting with some aspects of morality, and we'll come back to, uh, things more immediately religious in just a moment. But uh, one thing, and turn with me to Leviticus 18, but one thing I should add, when when Israel enters Canaan, what they find is um, uh, people who are accustomed to war. You have walled and um, fortified cities, you have uh, giants and experienced war, uh, warriors. So this is a this is a land of bloodshed. But Leviticus 18 gives us quite a, a shocking portrait of what's going on in the land. In Abraham's day, the iniquity was not full, but um, in Joshua's it is. Uh, Leviticus 18, beginning in verse one. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt wherein ye dwell, shall ye not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whither I bring you, shall ye not do. Neither shall ye walk in their ordinances. It's really interesting about this. We'll see this reiterated. The implication is the things that are getting ready to be listed are things that would have been done around them, either in Egypt or in Canaan. They're not to do those things, but rather, verse 4, you shall do my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. 
Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. So what are the, well, let me just, if you scan down to the end of the, of the passage, um, whatever the relationship might have been of the sins that are listed um, to, to the Egyptians, their more immediate focus and application does appear to be uh, Canaan. And you can see that at the end of the passage. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But first of all, the first sin that's listed here, verse uh, 6, None of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. And this introduces a, a rather lengthy section detailing the incestuous relationships and marriages that are being contracted in um, in uh, Canaan. So you have we have incest. Now scan down with me to verse 18. Neither shalt thou take a wife to her sister to vex her, to uncover her nakedness beside the other in her lifetime. So here we have um, polygamy. If you have a King James Bible with a marginal note, I do believe we have a reference here to... Um, it's like a it's a Hebrew colloquial expression. You shall not take one to another, um, a woman to another, one to another. Uh, so this is not uh, more incest legislation. This, that if, if so, this is redundant. We've already had that. Uh, the the formulaic expressions dealing with with incest have now been been left. And we have a, a prohibition of polygamy, that we are not to add one wife to another while the, while the first is uh, yet alive. Verse 19, Also thou shalt not approach unto a woman to uncover her nakedness, as long as she is put apart for her, for her uncleanness. So we've got other kinds of uh, sexual uncleanness. Verse 20, Moreover, thou shalt not lie carnally with thy neighbor's wife to defile thyself with her. So incest, polygamy, uncleanness, and adultery. And now we get a little snapshot that the idolatry, so here's a little snapshot of religion, has become of the very grossest variety in Canaan. Verse 21. And thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. Wow. So the, the destruction of their children, sacrifice of their children in their idolatry. Verse 22, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. So incest, polygamy, uncleanness, adultery, homosexuality. And uh, the path of sin is all downhill. It gets worse. Verse 23. Neither shalt thou lie with any beast to defile thyself therewith. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down thereto. It is confusion. Now... 
bestiality, if I just might say so, as I as I have watched the nations our nation's decay in, in sexual ethics, there's always a protestation that uh, that next step won't be won't be taken. When uh, homosexuality was being normalized, the question was asked, well, what's next? Pedophilia? And the answer was like, oh, of course not. Don't be ridiculous. But now, even now, we're watching uh, the sexualization of our of our children. So he goes on uh, to make application of these things. Verse 24, Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things, for in all these the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you, and the land is defiled. Therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own nation, nor any stranger that sojourneth among you. For all these abominations have the men of the land done, which were before you, and the land is defiled, that the land spew not you out also when you defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. It's very interesting here. This is an extraordinary judgment upon the Canaanites. But we're reminded by the Lord that he's no respecter of person should the Israelites engage in like sins. They can expect like judgments even as the Canaanites are being expelled for these sins. The Israelites can expect to be expelled. Something that, of course will happen in subsequent history. Verse 29. For whosoever shall commit any of these abominations, even the soul that commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore shall ye keep mine ordinances that ye commit not any one of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that ye defile not yourselves therein. I am the Lord your God. So if we look at these considerations, I, I think we we have learned a lot. There's much value in um, taking this unflinching look, right? We, we saw that um, this is not unjust. The wages of sin, the just wages of sin is death, and all of the lives are forfeit to God, and he can take them in any way that he wants. We were uncomfortable because this judgment seemed extraordinary. We saw in Deuteronomy 20 that it is. Um, God wanted war normally hand handled in a different way and gave normal rules. But it raises the question, why these extraordinary rules? On the side of the people of God, he would protect them spiritually. And on the side of the Canaanites... He would bring extraordinary judgments upon uh, extraordinary sins, gross wickedness. But look at all of the things that we have learned about God by taking this un, uh, unflinching look. We see that it's uh, right of God to judge. We see justice and mercy and war. We see God's tender care of his children, 
had a little lesson that we ought not to expose ourselves to undue uh, temptations. We see God's judgments and vengeance against enemies. But if there is something that that looking at this does, and even considering just how hard it is to think about the the destruction of all the people, not just mankind, but womankind, not just adults, but children, that's hard. But hopefully we are impressed with two things, and more deeply impressed, um, perhaps, than when we started our considerations, that God is holy, and that sin is serious. Or you might even say, when our sinfulness comes into contact with God's holiness, the situation is dangerous, and it is dire. And those considerations are important to see reality the way that it is, and if they do their due work in us, um, those considerations will prepare us for the reception of the gospel.